0: This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Justin Laymiller, a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. Dr. Laymiller runs the Sex and Psychology blog and podcast and is author of the popular book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. He's an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard University, and is also a prolific researcher who has published more than 50 academic works, including a textbook titled The Psychology of Human Sexuality, that's used in college classrooms around the world. Dr. Miller is a much sought-after voice on sexuality research and education, and I'm so excited to have him here today. On this episode, we dig deep into sexual desire, the science of it, as well as sexual fantasies, what they mean, and why they're there in the first place. Dr. Miller shares his research, his findings, and we talk about what sex is really looking like in isolation today. Backed by the facts, not the headlines. Please welcome Dr. Justin Miller. Justin, I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. I discovered you and your work actually after a friend recommended I read your book, which is titled Tell Me What You Want. And after I read it, I just knew I had to get in touch with you. So thank you for being here today.
1: Sure. I'm so happy to speak with you and I'm so glad your friend recommended the book.
0: Before we get into the intricacies of our conversation today, which covers all things fantasies, pleasure, desire, Will you share with listeners just how you even got started working in the field? Like, what led you here? I'm so curious to know.
1: Sure. So, I received my doctorate in social psychology, and I was initially trained to study the science of relationships and what makes for a healthy, long term, committed relationship. And in the course of my training, I was assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course. And that was actually like really the first sex education that I ever had in my life aside from the one day in the fifth grade where I don't know what the heck we learned about that I knew even less about sex after that course (laughs) (laughs) I did beforehand but it, it was interesting as a graduate student sitting in on this course this opened up my eyes to the whole world of sex research and I thought it was so interesting that here I was studying the science of relationships but not talking about sex at all and that's What really sort of inspired me to kind of transition from relationship researcher to sex researcher because I started developing all these questions about sex and I found that oftentimes there weren't answers in the literature because sex is this politically controversial topic. There aren't a lot of sex researchers, there's not a lot of funding to do this kind of work and so I saw this as a field where I could really go in and make a contribution and study things that are really of great importance to people and can help them improve their own intimate lives.
0: I love that so much. And I'm, I'm curious to know what your messaging around sex and sexuality was like growing up. I know you mentioned you had that, that fifth grade course where you, you probably left knowing less than what you started with. But what was that like, maybe even in your household?
1: So I grew up in a relatively conservative area in a smallish city in Ohio. And I went to Catholic schools for much of my life. In fact, um, in grade school, I went to Catholic school for a big chunk of it, and then I went to a Catholic college for my undergraduate work and my master's. And so that's kind of why I didn't have the chance to take a sex course until I was in my doctorate program at a big state university where that kind of course was was actually offered. So, you know, sex wasn't something that we really talked about much at all growing up. Um, You know, I can remember just a couple of very brief conversations I might have had with my parents, but nothing in much depth or detail. So it just wasn't something we talked about at home.
0: Did you have kind of a pivotal moment while you were a TA or was it something else that you felt was a defining moment that I really want to revolutionize the conversation on?
1: Well, so... Part of what I had to do as a teaching assistant was to lead a weekly recitation section for 20 to 30 students. And so this was just me then as the instructor. And we would kind of do a deep dive into whatever topics were being covered in class that week. And students could ask any questions they wanted. And they had a heck of a lot of questions. Because for many of them, this was their first time to really ask somebody that they thought was an expert. And, you know, I certainly wasn't an expert at the time, but they treated me like one. Um, But they were asking me all these questions, and I found out just how little most people really know about sex, just how little I personally know about it. And that's when I really realized that this is an extremely important area. And most of us don't have reliable, trusted sources we can go to in our lives to find out this kind of information and so I really kind of wanted to to be that person that people can go to and and really get their questions answered from an evidence-based perspective because there's so many people out there who give sex advice but it's all based on their personal experiences and while I think there's some value in that you have to remember that everybody is unique and one person's experiences might not apply to another person's situation. And that's really where the value of data is in science is because we can see diversity in responses and what, how different things work for different people. So I really try to give that evidence-based perspective and really try to avoid giving the one-size-fits-all advice or guidance to people because, as I said, different things work for different people.
0: Mm, I love that so much and I think that's definitely one of the reasons I knew I had to reach out to you was because I was so curious to share with listeners just the science and the data behind all the work that you do and I think that kind of transitions me into kind of my next question which is I would love to just talk about desire with you just what is it and how does it drive us I I'm interested in the science here.
1: So I think it's important to start by distinguishing a sexual fantasy and a sexual desire, because while these things overlap, they are distinct constructs. So a sexual fantasy is just a mental thought or picture that turns you on. And by contrast, a sexual desire is a want or a wish. It's something that you actually would like to do in your life. Now, sexual fantasies are sometimes desires, but sometimes they aren't. So for example, sometimes you have a sexually arousing thought, but you would never actually want to do that in the real world. Um, But when it comes to people's favorite fantasy of all time, that go-to one that they keep coming back to over and over, for most people that does seem to be a desire and something that they want to incorporate into their sex lives. And when our fantasies become desires, this can lead us to sometimes talk to our partners about that. And we can use those fantasies as a form of dirty talk. Or maybe we decide to act on that fantasy with a partner and try something new and different in the bedroom or wherever it is that you want to have sex. And that can help to take our sex life to a new and different level and help to build a new intimacy with our partners.
0: I really like that distinction right there because I think that a lot of us have fantasies, but I kind of think of it on this spectrum of whether or not you really want to act them out. Because sometimes a fantasy is just really wonderful in your imagination, right?
1: Yeah. And sometimes fantasies are just best left as as fantasies. (laughs) When I ask people if they've ever acted out their fantasies and we look at what their experiences are like, sometimes the fantasy doesn't live up to reality for a wide range of reasons. And, That's why we need to approach acting out of fantasies with some degree of care and caution because while there are potential rewards that can come from that, there are also a lot of potential risks too that we might not have fully thought through. So it's okay to sometimes just leave a fantasy as a fantasy.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and I mean, why do you think we're so uncomfortable talking about our desires? I mean, you decided to write a whole book about sexual fantasies. So I'm Like, what is that void that you think is really seen across our culture that we're missing? Like, what's up with that?
1: So I've been running a blog called Sex and Psychology for about nine years now. And I get questions every day from readers all over the world. And I get lots of questions about sexual fantasies. And people will send me questions saying, hey, I'm turned on by this is that normal or what's wrong with me? Right. And so there's a lot of, shame and guilt and embarrassment and anxiety that's tied up in our sexual fantasies and most people don't really seem to know what a normal sexual fantasy is and they think that they're abnormal or weird because they think they're the only person who has that fantasy. So part of what I wanted to do with this book was to shine a light on what is it that people are fantasizing about and what what is a normal fantasy anyway and how can we Unpack and get rid of so much of the shame and anxiety that's tied up in our feelings about our sexual fantasies
0: And what is a normal fantasy?
1: (laughs) Well, normal I should I should back up and say that when I use the term normal I'm not implying any type of value judgment Um, I simply use the term normal as a statistician or a scientist where normal just means common so common sexual fantasies represent a really wide range far wider than most people would probably assume or predict so one of the things i found in my work was that there were really seven main categories of fantasies that most people have had before and if we just sort of briefly run through them one would be multi-partner sex so if you've ever fantasized about a threesome or an orgy or something like that you're in very good company Um, Another one of these themes is power, control, and rough sex, so anything under the umbrella of BDSM, so if you've ever fantasized about rough sex or power play, you're totally normal. Um, Also, novelty, adventure, and variety, so trying new and different things, having sex in different settings, locations, positions, um, adding sex toys, or just trying new and different things, that's totally normal too. Then also fantasizing about taboo things, things that you're not supposed to do. Fashion and romance fantasies, fantasies about being in a non-monogamous relationship, such as swinging or polyamory, Um, fantasies about gender bending, where you're sort of playing with your gender role or expression, and then also What we call erotic flexibility fantasies, where maybe you are a heterosexual person who has a same-sex fantasy. All of these things are incredibly normal, and most people have these fantasies at one time or another.
0: Really such cool findings, and... Another reason why I can't recommend your book enough for people to get their hands on because you really base a lot of your findings off of a study that actually you conducted and you say it's the largest study around sexual fantasies that's ever been done before. And I'm really interested in your findings here. So I'm sure you determined kind of these seven common sexual desires through this study. Is that correct?
1: Yes, so I surveyed 4,175 Americans from all 50 states, ranging in age from 18 to 87. They come from very diverse backgrounds, and they completed a 369-question survey about their sexual fantasies, their personalities, their sexual histories, their demographic backgrounds, with the idea being that I wanted to look at not just what we're fantasizing about, but also what do our fantasies say about us, and how do they vary across different demographic groups? How do they relate to our personalities or our previous relationship experiences? So this was a very broadly designed survey because I wanted to answer a lot of questions that had not previously been addressed in the literature. And one of the really big ones was, What is that connection between fantasy and reality? Mm. So how many people have ever shared their favorite fantasy with a partner? How many have acted on it? And what were their experiences like? And how can we help people to have even better experiences?
0: I was really fascinated with how people aren't really taught how our largest sexual organ is our brain and the power of our mind and how immeasurable that is and I'd really love for you to speak more on this in terms of your research. Like, What were your findings about kind of just the mind and how the human brain works in terms of arousal?
1: Yeah, so sex is about so much more than just a genital act. And what's going on in your brain during the activity is so incredibly important. And what I find is that most people actually fantasize while they're engaged in partnered sex, just as most people also fantasize while they're engaged in masturbation. And so fantasy is this tool that we often rely on to become aroused and to help us stay aroused and focused in the moment while we're engaged in sexual activity. So the mind is a very, very, very powerful thing when it comes to sex. And I think our fantasies tend to play this outsized role in sexual arousal because so many of us have difficulties kind of staying in the moment we get easily distracted during sex Mm. or our mind starts to wander and we start to think about, um, how do I look right now? Or, um, you know, is my partner really into me or attracted to me or not? You know, it's easy for the mind to wander and for that to impact your arousal. And so we often turn to our fantasies as a sort of coping mechanism to help us maintain arousal in that moment.
0: That is so fascinating. And I'm really glad that you brought up that point because I think that there are a lot of people and I think we're all guilty of it in in different instances of really just not being 100% present in some sort of sexual situation and it can be tough and I think for some people it can be tough to get in the mood and you know even if they really want to it's hard to get their head out of maybe the work day or their to-do list or something else that's really preoccupying so what is your advice for someone who is looking to get into a better headspace in and around their sex lives
1: So one of the things that I often recommend is mindfulness practices. There's a lot of research by the psychologist Lori Brado, who's written a fantastic book on this subject called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And she's conducted a lot of research on this topic. And, And essentially, mindfulness is all about learning to be in the moment, to focus on the physical sensations that you're experiencing, and to get out of your head. And it's very easy to, to try and practice this. The basic starting point is to sit in your chair for 10 minutes a day, close your eyes, and just think about the different sensations that you're feeling throughout your body. And don't focus on the story behind them and why you're feeling those sensations. Just focus on the sensations themselves. And if other thoughts pop into your head, acknowledge them, but let them go and return to the physical sensations. And once people get a certain amount of practice with this in general, they can start to apply that same technique in the bedroom. So while they're having sex, again going back and focusing on the physical sensations and not getting lost in your head and so this is a way that people can kind of learn how to be in the moment how to have better sex it can also open the door to experiencing more sexual desire because by sort of clearing your head of all of those distractions insecurities anxieties and worries that can open you up to feeling more desire in the first place this isn't just for better sex it's It's a tool for a better life in general because we all need that ability to disconnect, to de-stress, to clear our heads of all of these thoughts that are happening. And I think that's especially true during this pandemic that we're living in right now where levels of stress are really heightened. A lot of people feel really lonely and isolated. And so we all need to find tools for, for coping with that. And mindfulness can be one particularly powerful one. Uh, that can be helpful just in terms of general stress reduction, but also helping to cultivate desire and have better sex in the moment.
0: I think that also a really common narrative that we're given from a young age. And I'm wondering if we can kind of like bust a myth here, honestly. I think that we are told a lot that men, and I'm speaking heteronormatively here, think about sex way more than women. Is this true? Is there a difference in our minds in the way we think and operate around sex? Does gender even matter?
1: I mean, there are some gender differences. So for example, a colleague of mine, Terry Fisher, actually conducted a study where she had college-age men and women carry around a tally counter all day, every day And, you know, a tally counter is basically like what a bouncer at a bar uses to keep track of how many people come in. And so they would hit the tally counter every time they had a sexual thought. And what they found was that on average, men thought about sex twice per hour, women thought about sex once per hour so men do tend to have sex in the brain a little bit more than women but women have sex on the brain more than most people would think um now when it comes to the actual content of our sexual thoughts and in particular when we're talking about sexual fantasies i find that there's a lot more similarities than there are differences in men's and women's fantasies so most of the things that men fantasize about women fantasize about as well, and vice versa. And this also holds across sexual orientations too. So there's so much more that unites us than, than divides us when it comes to our sexual thoughts. And I think one of the really big myths that we can bust is this idea that sex is this inherently physical act for men, whereas it's an emotional act for women. No, it's it's a mix of the two things for, for everybody. And I find that, for example, most men are fantasizing about meeting some emotional need almost every time they're fantasizing about sex whether they consciously recognize it or not so for example even if you think about something like a threesome you know most men want to be the center of attention in that threesome and there's a reason for that it's because they want to feel desired and wanted and attractive and sexually competent right so it's not just about a physical act it's about meeting some deeper emotional need
0: you know in a lot of the narratives that we do have around those conversations we love to create these like gender divides and differences and i i appreciate that that myth bust right there because i think that we all are so diverse and we all hold such capacities to be such like physical and emotional creatures right
1: Absolutely. And, you know, women's fantasies are far more adventuresome than most people give them credit for. You know, if you look at a lot of the past research on sexual fantasies, it says, well, women are into passion and romance. Well, what I find in my work is, well, yeah, women have a lot of passion and romance fantasies, but they have a heck of a lot of group sex and BDSM and taboo fantasies as well. Right. So uh, we're all very sexually flexible in terms of what can turn us on and what meets our needs. In that moment
0: <laughs> I just had like a vision of um like those like romance novels from back in the day with like a woman on like a horse and her hair is blowing and it's so like damsel in distress and I feel like <laughs> that that is such a emotional narrative that we've really <laughs> we've really clung to it's
1: pretty cliche you know certainly there were some women who took my survey who had fantasies that you know could have come directly out of a romance novel, but, you know, that's a vast oversimplification.
0: Yes, definitely. So, okay, I know this might sound silly, but is there such thing as a bad fantasy?
1: That's an interesting question. So what is a bad fantasy? Um, You know, is it something that makes you feel bad? Is it something that you shouldn't do? So it kind of depends on how you define that. But... You know, the way I tend to view it is that, you know, as somebody who studies sexual fantasies and who follows in the footsteps of Alfred Kinsey, who famously said, we are the recorders and reporters of facts, not the judges of the behaviors that we describe. I take that same approach to thinking about sexual fantasies, that fantasies are not inherently good or bad in and of themselves. And most people have a wide range of fantasies, some of which might be very deviant, some of which might be non-consensual. But having the fantasy itself is not inherently bad thing. Where it becomes bad is when you have the fantasy And it's a really dark fantasy, but you're afraid that you might act on it or you think you're going to act on it. So if you have a non-consensual fantasy or a fantasy that would be extremely risky to your health or to the health of somebody else, and you have a strong desire to act on it, that's when it's time to seek help. Because you don't want that fantasy to turn into something that ends up hurting you or somebody else.
0: Mm, That's so interesting. And... (laughs) This might sound outlandish here, but I'm a very big fan of true crime. And I think I'm fascinated by it because I'm just like, why do people do the things they do? And I'm also interested in it because I don't know if there's really like a concrete answer. But in a way, I'm like, I can't help but correlate some of the bad things that people do. I'm like, these must be fantasies that have been just acted out. That could have been me just going on a whim there, but...
1: Well, I mean, I get what you're saying, and there are some psychologists who have, you know, kind of looked at that link between fantasy and sexual offending. And what we see is that fantasy is not a necessary or sufficient cause for committing sexual offenses. 100%. So yes. Somebody might commit a sex crime without ever having fantasized about it before and somebody might fantasize about something that would be a criminal act if they were to do it but they would never actually do it and so what we see is that it's the fantasy in combination with certain personality traits and factors and certain sets of attitudes where then it's the confluence of those factors that predicts sexual offending. So, for example, if you had a man who has a fantasy about forcing sex on a woman and that man has a very antisocial personality and he has very negative attitudes toward women and high levels of acceptance of aggression towards women, that is where you have a risk factor for somebody committing a sexual offense.
0: Got it. It's much more of a recipe. So, I mean, what do you do if if you, you know, if someone's listening and they do have a similar fantasy to that nature? Like, is that like what sort of ownership do you take around that? So
1: I think we tend to be very harsh judges of our own sexual fantasies. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you have a fantasy about something that is really dark, really deviant, and it just pops into your mind once, but it's not something you ever want to act on. Don't freak out about it. You know, it's it's probably not a cause for concern. That's a pretty normal experience for people to have. People have all kinds of dark thoughts, sexual and non-sexual. You know, in fact, this was one of the really eye-opening experiences for me when I took my introductory psychology course. I remember this section in our textbook where they had this whole list of really dark thoughts, such as, you know, committing murder or, um, you know, you're standing on the corner and cars are coming by and somebody's in front of you and thinking about pushing somebody else out in traffic, you know. um, What they found was that, most people had had some of these really dark thoughts before, but that doesn't mean that we're all dark, bad people that are going to commit and act on these things, right? So we need to distinguish the fantasy from the behavior. Now, again, if you have a fantasy about a really dark activity, you have the desire to act on it that is when it's time to seek help so that you can get the help and resources and support you need so that you don't act on that fantasy and that you don't end up hurting somebody else.
0: In general, I'm curious, how do we get better about just owning and exploring what our sexual language and diversity of pleasure is?
1: So I think it starts with, self-acceptance right you have to learn to accept your own fantasies and stop judging and shaming yourself and that's a big part of what i do in the book is helping to break down what are the most common fantasies and helping people to understand that most of the things you're fantasizing about are the same things that other people are fantasizing about as well so once you start shedding that sexual shame and anxiety then you can open the door to having productive conversations about sex with a partner. Because, you know, if you don't feel good about your own fantasies, how the heck can you you know, really have a productive conversation about that with a partner. So it starts first with self-acceptance and then establishing a norm of sexual communication in your relationship where you can both freely discuss what it is that turns you on and you can listen to your partner without judging or shaming them and then figure out how you can enhance pleasure for for everyone in that relationship.
0: If someone feels a little bit awkward you know they've done the the self-acknowledgement they they have a fantasy that they would they desire to act out and then they're a little bit uncomfortable sharing that with who they choose or desire to to share it with what what are your recommendations for kind of opening that gate to communication
1: I, I think first it's important to recognize that you don't have to share all of your fantasies with a partner Again, you can keep some fantasies just for yourself and for your own enjoyment. But if you think you want to open that door of sharing fantasies, it's important to start low and go slow. So maybe open the door by talking about some of your, you know, more vanilla, very tame sorts of fantasies, or maybe talking about some past sexual experiences that you had uh, together that you thought were really pleasurable and why. And so you can use that as a starting point for getting the conversation going, building mutual self-disclosure and trust, and then you can advance to more adventuresome sorts of fantasies later on. And if you really have a hard time sort of breaking down that door, you can kind of let games and technology be your friend here so for example you can just play a game with your partner of would you rather and you can pose a couple of different scenarios to each other and say would you rather have a threesome or get spanked right uh and just kind of test the water and see kind of what is it that they respond to what are they into and what aren't they into without you necessarily putting all your cards out on the table and you can also use some apps for this um Two that I like to recommend, one is called X Confessions. Uh, The other one is called Own Your Sex. And they're both sort of like Tinder for sexual fantasies where you and your partner each download the app, you sync your accounts, and then you're each separately presented with This whole list of sexual fantasies and you swipe right on the ones you're into and left on the ones that you aren't and then the app compiles your shared interests and shares them with you and it doesn't share the ones that you're not a match on so that's a really handy way of kind of honing in on your shared interests while also sort of taking some of the pressure off in case your partner doesn't end up being interested in the same things that you are now there is one caveat to that that i would add which is that some people do have very highly specific sexual interests and tastes you know people for example who might fall into the fetish category and what we see sometimes is that some people with fetishes will hide them from their partners and then it's not only until well into the relationship here sometimes decades later that their partner accidentally discovers the other person's fetish because they saw their porn search history or found their fetish objects around the house. Um, And then that can often become a point of contention in the relationship because Mm. one partner feels like the other person kept this from them for a really long time and that they're hiding things. So, you know, there is the potential when people hide their sexual interests for a long period of time that it can actually undermine the relationship. And also it means that if you're not sharing it with your partner early on, that you're probably not going to be getting what you want out of sex. So, if you do have certain things that are very important to you, there might be value in kind of getting it out there sooner rather than hiding and concealing it from your partner for a really long period of time.
0: Mm, you kind of mentioned. A bit ago how we are in the pandemic and there is a lot going on in terms of just like how we're seeking desire and how we are seeking our pleasure. And so I am really interested because I know that you do a ton of research and you are a psychologist and you are just so on the ground level with everything really between clients and between research data. I'm curious like what Have you been observing? Is there anything new or different that's been going on? some of my colleagues and I at the Kinsey Institute have been
1: conducting a longitudinal study since mid-March to look at the impact of the pandemic on people's sex lives and relationships and we've added new questions to each wave of our surveys so that we could look at a really broad range of ways that people are being impacted so for example we've looked at porn use we've looked at sexual fantasies we've looked at online dating and we found a lot of different things I think you know, just as a starting point, rates of sexual activity are down compared to where they were pre-pandemic. You know, there was all this talk at the beginning about how there was going to be a coronavirus baby boom, but our data don't support <laughs> that idea at all. You know, people are wow. less sexually active now, um, and they're also masturbating less now than they were beforehand, which I think is also interesting. Mm. Um And part of the reason for that is because so many people still feel these really high levels of stress and anxiety, and that interferes with their ability to, you know, want to open themselves up to pleasure, whether that's by themselves or with a partner. Um, We also see that, you know, more people are reporting declines rather than improvements in their sex lives and relationships. But in our more recent data, that's starting to change a little bit where people are starting to report more improvements rather than decline. So things are getting a little bit better, um, but this situation has been uniquely challenging in so many ways. And I think one of the most interesting things to look at is how did this situation change our sexual fantasies? And what I find is that people are actually fantasizing more now during the pandemic than they were before, which is interesting because we're masturbating less, but we're fantasizing more. And part of the reason for that is because our fantasies serve a lot of different purposes in our lives. They help us to meet unmet emotional needs, unmet sexual needs. Uh, Our fantasies are also a potent source of distraction and escape. And so we see that a lot of people are turning to their fantasies right now for self-care and therapeutic reasons, and they're using it to help them relax, to escape, and to meet these needs that otherwise would go unmet because it's much harder to date and have casual sex than it was before the pandemic. And even for people who are living with partners, if you have kids living at home with you 24-7 now, it can be hard to find those times for intimacy. So there's really a lot of pressures on all of us to kind of turn inward to meet a lot of those needs right now.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That is so fascinating. And, you know, sex and pleasure is really easy to push to the wayside, even actually taking sex out of the equation, just pleasure in general. It's so easy to just say, I'm not going to do that today. You know, there's something else takes more precedent. So I'm wondering, like, how can we better use fantasy even outside of sex? Like, what are some examples of using fantasy to just get into a better headspace? Well, a
1: lot of people use fantasies as a way of de-stressing at the end of the day. So for, for some people, it's kind of the last thing they do before they fall asleep. Um, and it's just sort of a time of distraction, escape, focusing on something else for a little while. And, and so in that way, fantasies can help to reduce and relieve stress and help us to get a more restful night of sleep. And we know that sleep Mm. is really important for sexual functioning and sexual desire. So that's one sort of handy way that people can kind of use their fantasies in this, you know, sort of self-care kind of way. But we can also use our fantasies during partnered activities, again, to kind of that keep us in the moment to kind of maintain arousal and I think we really need to not judge our partners if they're fantasizing while we're having sex with them. I know a lot of people get really insecure about this and think that well if their mind is elsewhere then they're not really into me and that's a problem but it's really important to recognize that It's hard for a lot of us to to really stay focused and in the moment during sex, and not all of us are practiced and experienced with mindfulness, and so our fantasies are kind of a handy way of sort of just maintaining that arousal when we're with a partner, and there's nothing inherently wrong
0: with that. I'm curious, what do you think is an integral part of staying sexually well? that's a good question
1: and you know the answer might be a little bit different for people who are single versus in relationships but regardless of what your relationship status is i think uh, a big part of staying well goes back to that self-acceptance piece that i talked about earlier so much So many of us are so hard on ourselves sexually for what it is that turns us on and what we fantasize about. And I think we need to uh, start by embracing our sexual selves and and really feel good about who we are and what turns us on. And I think if you're in a relationship with someone, it's really important to have regular check-ins with your partner about how your sex life is going and are you getting what you want and how can we make the sex that we're having even better. I think too many people get obsessed with establishing sexual compatibility at the beginning of their relationship, and they think they establish compatibility, and then they never revisit that again. But people change over time. Your body changes. What feels good to you changes. Your psychological needs and intimate needs change. Even your sexual fantasies change. This is something I see in my data is that people in their 40s and 50s have different fantasies than people in their... Uh, late teens and 20s right so we need to have these check-ins with our partners to be on the same page and understand that we're all evolving as sexual beings and that what makes us compatible right now might not be what makes us compatible um, a year or 10 years from now don't don't approach it too formally it's not like a you know formal (laughs) evaluation where you're sitting down with a college professor or something like that, you know, make it fun. You can turn it into a game. There's all kinds of ways that can go. Uh, The important thing is just that you're having that conversation and that it's an ongoing and evolving conversation.
0: Yes. I love that. And I'm curious, like what is your sexual wellness routine looking like these days aside from those check-ins and, and that sort of stuff?
1: What I would say is that I tend to follow, my own advice and my advice comes from the research and so you know for me a big part of it is is again having those high levels of communication but another big part of it is not being afraid to try new and different things Uh, we know that human beings are inherently turned on by the idea of novelty and we grow bored with sexual routines pretty easily so it's important for us to keep mixing it up and trying new things and this is something that's also borne out in our uh, pandemic research we see that one in five of our participants say that they've made a new addition to their sex life since the pandemic began and the people who made new additions were three times more likely to say that their sex life had improved compared to the people who didn't try anything So this is a practical piece of advice that people can apply in their intimate lives right now is to mix it up, try something new. And one of the big new additions for many people in our study was that they shared their sexual fantasies or acted on their fantasies for the first time during the pandemic. Or they tried having sex in a new place in the home or in a new position Um, for people who were single Maybe they tried sexting for the first time, or they tried using their very first sex toy, right? There's all kinds of ways that you can add an element of newness and novelty to your sex life and, you know, sort of boost that excitement factor, but also explore your sexual self. Because when you try new things, you discover new sensations, and you'll find some things you don't like, but some things you really do like. And by expanding your sexual self in that way, it gives you more Diversified options for finding pleasure in the future
0: mm That is amazing. And I just want to say how neat it is that you are conducting this study. I mean, it is so of the here and now. And I'm sure that this data is going to be really, really useful and impactful just to the way that even people go out in the world and start creating.
1: Our our reasons for conducting the research, there were a couple of them. But one of the big ones was that there were so many claims being made in the media about what was going to happen in people's sex lives when this pandemic began. You know, there was all the talk of the baby boom and porn searches are spiking and Amazon can't keep dildos on the shelves and, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, on, online dating apps are surging, right? You're, you're seeing all of this information reported. And we wanted to see, well, is that actually being borne out in people's intimate lives? And what we find in a lot of cases is that, no, that's not actually what was happening um, in the broader population. But the other thing we wanted to do with this research was to look at what are the unique challenges and struggles that people are facing right now and who are the people who are really thriving and what is working for them and what can we learn from them so that now and in future situations we might have a guidebook we can use to try and help people better navigate these situations to give them the tools that they need to maintain Happy and healthy intimate
0: lives. As we're wrapping up here, my last question for you is What is your advice for someone who is just starting out to understand their desires and fantasies? How do you recommend that they better connect to them?
1: So, there are a couple of pieces of advice here. One is to think about your fantasy and what is it that you think you're ultimately trying to get out of it. And I think this is especially important if people think that they really want to act on this particular fantasy, right? Um, And if they want to try and do this with their current partner. So a different way to think about your fantasies is to reframe the conversation from what is it that I fantasize about to how is it that I want to feel? during sex right so what is the deeper emotional need or what are the physical sensations that i'm trying to get out of sex and when you can try and analyze your fantasy at that level then that can give you more options for how you might go about trying to explore those sensations in in real life so it's just sort of reframing the the conversation there a little bit and again if you're very new to all of this um and it comes to sharing fantasies with a partner, it's starting slow, building that norm of communication, building up the trust and intimacy before you start getting into the really advanced conversations and discussions. There's no reason you have to get everything all out there all at once, um, but rather fantasy sharing works best in this atmosphere of mutual trust and intimacy and communication.
0: Justin, this was so amazing. Thank you so much for your time and insight here. I know that our listeners are probably just gushing over all of what you shared with us today. So tell us where we can connect with you, where we can find you, and how we can follow your work some more.
1: Sure. So my website is Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com. Uh, I run a blog there where it's updated three times a week with. The latest and greatest sex research and information you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media channels and uh, see what i'm up to when i'm not researching and writing about sex you can also find links to my book tell me what you want as well as my textbook the psychology of human sexuality if you want a more in-depth all-encompassing look at all
0: things sex I think it's really inspirational, and I cannot wait for listeners to not only hear everything that you said, but hopefully explore more of your work and what you are putting out there.
1: Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate your kind words and your support for my work.
0: Thank you for listening to The Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at TheBedside and TheBedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.